Chapter Seven of Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The difference between Martin's relations to Madeline and to Leora was the difference between a rousing duel and a serene comradeship. From their first evening, Leora and he depended on each other's loyalty and liking, and certain things in his existence were settled forever. Yet his absorption in her was not stagnant. He was always making discoveries about the observations of life which she kept incubating in her secret little head while she made smoke-rings with her cigarettes and smiled silently. He longed for the girl Leora. She stirred him, and with gay frank passion she answered him. But to another, sexless Leora, he talked more honestly than to Gottlieb or his own worried self, while with her boyish nod or an occasional word she encouraged him to confidence in his evolving ambition and disdains. Part Two Dagama Pie Fraternity was giving a dance. It was understood, among the anxiously whispering medics, that so cosmopolitan was the University of Winnemac becoming, that they were expected to wear the symbols of respectability, known as dress suits. On the solitary and nervous occasion, when Martin had worn evening clothes, he had rented them from the varsity pantorium. But he must own them, now that he was going to introduce Leora to the world as his pride and flowering. Like two little old people, absorbed in each other, and diffidently exploring new, unwelcoming streets of the city, where their alienated children live, Martin and Leora edged into the garnished magnificence of Benson, Hanley, and Cokes, the loftiest department store in Zenith. She was intimidated by the luminous cases of mahogany and plate glass, by the opera hats, and lustrous mufflers and creamy riding-breeches. When he had tried on a dinner suit and come out for her approval, his long brown tie and soft-collared shirt, somewhat rustic behind the low evening waistcoat, and when the clerk had gone to fetch collars, she wailed, "'Darn it, Sandy, you're too grand for me. I just simply can't get myself to fuss over my clothes, and here you're going to look so spiffy I won't have a chance with you.' He almost kissed her. The clerk returned, warbled, "'I think, madame, you'll find that your husband will look very nice indeed in these wing collars.' Then, while the clerk sought ties, he did kiss her, and she sighed, "'Oh, gee, you're one of these people that get ahead. I never thought I'd have to live up to a man with a dress suit and a come-to-heaven collar. Oh, well, I'll tag.' Part three. For the Digamma Ball, the University Armory was extremely decorated. The brick walls were dizzy with bunting, spotty with paper chrysanthemums, and plaster skulls, and wooden scalpels ten feet long. In six years at Mohalis, Martin had gone to less than a score of dances, though the refined titillations of communal embracing were the chief delight of the coeducational university. When he arrived at the armory, with Leora timorously brave in a blue crepe de chine made in no recognizable style, he did not care whether he had a single two-step, though he did achingly desire to have the men crowd in and ask Leora, admire her and make her welcome. Yet he was too proud to introduce her about. 
lest he seem to be begging his friends to dance with her. They stood alone, under the balcony, disconsolately facing the vastness of the floor, while beyond them flashed the current of dancers, beautiful, formidable, desirable. Leora and he had assured each other that, for a student affair, dinner jacket and black waistcoat would be the thing, as stated in the Benson, Hanley, and Coke chart of correct gents wearing apparel. But he grew miserable at the sight of voluptuous white waistcoats, and when that embryo famous surgeon, Angus Dewar, came by, disdainful as a greyhound, and pushing on white gloves, which are the whitest, the most superciliously white objects on earth, then Martin felt himself a hobbledy-hoy. "'Come on, we'll dance,' he said, as though it were a defiance to all Angus doers. He very much wanted to go home. He did not enjoy the dance, though she waltzed easily, and himself not too badly. He did not even enjoy having her in his arms. He could not believe that she was in his arms. As they revolved, he saw Dewar join a brilliance of pretty girls and distinguished-looking women about the great Dr. Silva, dean of the medical school. Angus seemed appallingly at home, and he waltzed off with the prettiest girl, sliding, swinging, deft. Martin tried to hate him as a fool, but he remembered that yesterday Angus had been elected to the honorary society of Sigma Chi. Leora and he crept back to the exact spot beneath the balcony where they had stood before, to their den, their one safe refuge. While he tried to be nonchalant and talk up to his new clothes, he was cursing the men he saw go by, laughing with girls, ignoring his Leora. "'Not many here yet,' he fussed. "'Pretty soon they'll all be coming, and then you'll have lots of dances.' "'Oh, I don't mind.' "'God, won't somebody come and ask the poor kid?' He fretted over his lack of popularity among the dancing men of the medical school. He wished Cliff Clausen were present. Cliff liked any sort of assembly, but he could not afford dress clothes. Then, rejoicing as at sight of the best beloved, he saw Irving Waters, that paragon of professional normality, wandering toward them. But Waters passed by, merely nodding. Thrice Martin hoped and desponded, and now all his pride was gone. If Leora could be happy... I wouldn't care a hoot if she fell for the gabbiest fusser in the whole you, and gave me the good-bye all evening, anything to let her have a good time. If I could coax Dewar over, no, that's one thing I couldn't stand, crawling to that dirty snob. I will. Up ambled Fatty Faff, just arrived. Martin pounced on him lovingly. Hello, old Fat. You're a stag tonight? Meet my friend, Miss Tozer. Fatty's bulbous eyes showed approval of Leora's cheeks and amber hair. He heaved, Pleased to meet Dance starting. Have the honor? In so flattering a manner that Martin could have kissed him. That he himself stood alone through the dance did not occur to him. He leaned against a pillar and gloated. He felt gorgeously unselfish. That various girl wallflowers were sitting near him, waiting to be asked, did not occur to him either. He saw Fatty introduce Leora to a decorative pair of digams, 
one of whom begged her for the next. Thereafter she had more invitations than she could take. Martin's excitement cooled. It seemed to him that she clung too closely to her partners, that she followed their steps too eagerly. After the fifth dance he was agitated. Course, she's enjoying herself. Hasn't got time to notice that I just stand here, yes, by thunder, and hold her scarf. Sure, fine for her. Fact I might like a little dancing myself. And the way she grins and gawps at that fool Brindle Morgan, the, the, the damnedest. Oh, you and I are going to have a talk, young woman. And those hounds trying to pinch her off me. The one thing I've ever loved. Just because they dance better than I, and spiel a lot of foolishness. And that damn orchestra, playing that damn peppery music and she falling for all their damn cheap compliments, and you and I are going to have one little understanding. When she next returned to him, besieged by three capering medics, he muttered to her, Oh, it doesn't matter about me. Would you like this one? Course you shall have it. She turned to him fully. She had none of Madeline's sense of having to act for the benefit of observers. Through a strained eternity of waiting, while he glowered, she babbled of the floor, the size of the room, and her dandy partners. At the sound of the music, he held out his arms. No, she said, I want to talk to you. She led him to a corner and hurled at him. Sandy, this is the last time I'm going to stand for your looking jealous. Oh, I know. See here. If we're going to stick together, and we are, I'm going to dance with just as many men as I want to, and I'm going to be just as foolish with them as I want to. Dinners and those things, I suppose. I'll always go on being a clam, nothing to say. But I love dancing, and I'm going to do exactly what I want to. And if you had any sense whatever, you'd know I don't care a hang for anybody but you. Yours. Absolute no matter what fool things you do, and there'll probably be plenty. So when you go and get jealous on me again, you sneak off and get rid of it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? I wasn't jealous. Yes, I was. Oh, I can't help it. I'd love you so much. I'd be one fine lover, now wouldn't I, if I never got jealous. All right, only you've got to keep it under cover. Now we'll finish the dance. He was her slave. Part 4 It was regarded as immoral at the University of Winnemac to dance after midnight, and at that hour the guests crowded into the imperial cafeteria. Ordinarily it closed at eight, but tonight it kept open till one, and developed a spirit of almost lascivious mirth. Fatty Faff did a jig, Another humorous student, with a napkin over his arm, pretended to be a waiter, and a girl, but she was much disapproved, smoked a cigarette. At the door, Cliff Clausen was waiting for Martin and Leora. He was in his familiar shiny grey suit, with a blue flannel shirt. Cliff assumed that he was the authority to whom all of Martin's friends must be brought for judgment. He had not met Leora. Martin had confessed his double engagement. He had explained that Leora was unquestionably the most gracious young woman on earth, but as he had previously used up all of his laudatory adjectives, 
and all of Cliff's patience on the subject of Madeline, Cliff failed to listen, and prepared to dislike Leora as another siren of morality. He eyed her now with patronizing enmity. He croaked at Martin behind her back. Good-looking kid, I will say that for her. What's wrong with her? When they had brought their own sandwiches and coffee and mosaic cake from the long counter, Cliff rasped, well, it's grand of a couple of dress-suit swells like you to assassinate with me mid the midmosts of sartorials and society. Gosh, it's fierce I had to miss the select pleasures of an evening with anxious doer and associated highboys, and merely play a low game of poker, in which father deftly removed the sum of six simolia, point ten, from the foregathered bums and yahoos. Well, Leori, I suppose you and Martykins here have now rationated all these questions of polo and, uh, Monte Carlo, and so on. She had an immense power of accepting people as they were. While Cliff waited, leering, she placidly investigated the inside of a chicken sandwich and assented, Mm-hmm. Good boy. I thought you were going to pull that... If you are a roughneck, I don't see why you think you've got to boast about it. Stuff that Mart springs on me. Cliff turned into a jovial, and, for him, unusually quiet companion. Ex-farmhand, ex-book agent, ex-mechanic, he had so little money, yet so scratching a desire to be resplendent, that he took refuge in pride in poverty, pride in being offensive. Now, when Leora seemed to look through his boasting, he liked her as quickly as had Martin, and they buzzed with gaiety. Martin was warmed to benevolence toward mankind, including Angus Dur, who was at the end of the room at a table with Dean Silva and his silvery women. Without plan, Martin sprang up, raced down the room. Holding out his hand, he clamored, Angus, old man, want to congratulate you on getting Sigma Chi. That's fine. Dewar regarded the outstretched hand as though it was an instrument which he had seen before, but whose use he could not quite remember. He picked it up and shook it tentatively. He did not turn his back. He was worse than rude. He looked patient. Well, good luck, said Martin, chilled and shaky. Very good of you. Thanks. Martin returned to Leora and Cliff, to tell them the incident as a cosmic tragedy. They agreed that Angus Dewar was to be shot. In the midst of it, Dewar came past, trailing after Dean Silva's party, and nodded to Martin, who glared back, feeling noble and mature. At parting, Cliff held Leora's hand and urged, Honey, I think a lot of Mart, and one time I was afraid the old kid was going to get tied up to parties that would turn him into a handshaker. I'm a handshaker myself. I know less about medicine than Prof. Robert Shaw. But this boob has some conscience to him, and I'm so darn glad he's playing around with a girl that's real folks, and listen at me falling all over my clumsy feet. But I just mean, I hope you won't mind Uncle Cliff saying he does, by golly, like you a lot. It was almost four when Martin returned from taking Leora home, and sagged into bed. He could not sleep. The aloofness of Angus Dur racked him as an insult to himself, 
as somehow an implied insult to leora but his boyish rage had passed into a bleaker worry didn't dur for all his snobbishness and shallowness have something that he himself lacked didn't cliff with his puppy-dog humour his speech of a vaudeville farmer his suspicion of fine manners as posing take life too easily didn't dur know how to control and drive his hard little mind wasn't there a technique of manners as there was of experimentation gottlieb's fluent bench technique versus the clumsy and podgy hands of ira hinckley or was all this inquiry a treachery a yielding to dur's own affected standard he was so tired that behind his closed eyelids were flashes of fire his whirling mind flew over every sentence he had said or heard that night till round his twisting body there was fevered shouting part five as he grumped across the medical campus next day he came unexpectedly upon angus and he was smitten with the guiltiness and embarrassment one has toward a person who has borrowed money and probably will not return it mechanically he began to blurt hello but he checked it in a croak scowled and stumbled on oh mart angus called he was dismayingly even remember speaking to me last evening it struck me when i was going out that you looked huffy i was wondering if you thought i'd been rude i'm sorry if you did fact is i had a rotten headache look i've got four tickets for as it listeth in zenith next friday evening original new york cast like to see it and i noticed you were with a peach at the dance suppose she might like to go along with us she and some friend of hers why gosh i'll phone her darn nice of you to ask us it was not till melancholy dusk when leora had accepted and promised to bring with her a probationer nurse named nelly byers that martin began to brood wonder if he did have a headache last night wonder if somebody gave him the tickets why didn't he ask dad silva's daughter to go with us does he think leora is some tart i've picked up sure he never really quarrels with anybody wants to keep us all friendly so we'll send him surgical patients some day when we're hick gps and he's a great and only why did i crawl down so meekly i don't care if leora enjoys it me personally i don't care two hoots for all this trotting around though of course it isn't so bad to see pretty women in fine clothes and be dressed as good as anybody oh i don't know Part six. In the slightly midwestern city of Zenith, the appearance of a play, with the original New York cast, was an event. What play it was did not much matter. The Dodsworth Theatre was splendid with the aristocracy from the big houses on Royal Ridge. Leora and Nellie Byers admired the Bloods, graduates of Yale and Harvard and Princeton, lawyers and bankers motor manufacturers and inheritors of real estate virtuosi of golf familiars of new york who with their shrill and glistening women occupied the front rows miss byers pointed out the dodsworths who were often mentioned in town topics leora and miss byers bounced with admiration of the hero when he refused the governorship martin worried because the heroine was prettier than leora 
and Angus Dewar, who gave an appearance of knowing all about plays without having seen more than half a dozen in his life, admitted that the set depicting Jack Van Dusen's camp in the Adirondacks, sunset, the next day, was really very nice. Martin was in a mood of determined hospitality. He was going to give them supper, and that was all there was to it. Miss Byers explained that they had to be in the hospital by a quarter after eleven, but Leora said lazily, "'Oh, I don't care. I'll slip in through a window. If you're there in the morning, the old cat can't prove you got in late.' Shaking her head at this lying wickedness, Miss Byers fled to a trolley car, while Leora, Angus, and Martin strolled to Epstein's Alt-Nuremberg Café, for beer and Swiss cheese sandwiches, flavored by the sight of German drinking mottoes and papier-mâché armor. Angus was studying Leora, looking from her to Martin, watching their glances of affection. That a keen young man should make a comrade of a girl who could not bring him social advancement, that such a thing as the boy-and-girl passion between Martin and Leora could exist, was probably inconceivable to him. He decided that she was conveniently frail. He gave Martin a refined version of a leer, and set himself to acquiring her for his own uses. "'I hope you enjoyed the play,' he condescended to her. "'Oh, yes.' "'Jove, I envy you, too. Of course I understand why girls fall for Martin here, with his romantic eyes, but a grind like me, I have to go on working without a single person to give me sympathy.' Oh, well, I deserve it for being shy of women. With unexpected defiance from Leora, when anybody says that, it means they're not shy, and they despise women. Despise them? Why, child, honestly, I long to be a Don Juan, but I don't know how. Won't you give me a lesson? Angus's aridly correct voice had become lulling. He concentrated on Leora, as he would have concentrated on dissecting a guinea-pig. She smiled at Martin now and then to say, "'Don't be jealous, idiot. I'm magnificently uninterested in this conceited hypnotist.' But she was flustered by Angus's sleek assurance, by his homage to her eyes and wit and reticence. Martin twitched with jealousy. He blurted that they must be going. Leora really had to be back. The trolleys ran infrequently after midnight, and they walked to the hospital through hollow and sounding streets. Angus and Leora kept up a high-strung chatter, while Martin stalked beside them, silent, sulky, proud of being sulky. Skittering through a garage alley, they came out on the mass of Zenith General Hospital, a block long, five stories of bleak windows with infrequent dim blotches of light. No one was about. The first floor was but five feet from the ground, and they lifted Leora up to the limestone ledge of a half-open corridor window. She slid in, whispering, "'Good night. Thanks.' Martin felt empty, dissatisfied. The night was full of a chill mournfulness. A light was suddenly flickering in a window above them, and there was a woman's scream breaking down into moans. He felt the tragedy of parting, that in the briefness of life he should lose one moment of her living presence. "'I'm going in after her. See she gets there safe,' he said. The frigid edge of the stone sill bit his hands, 
but he vaulted thrust up his knee crawled hastily through the window ahead of him in the cork-floored hallway lit only by a tiny electric globe leora was tiptoeing toward a flight of stairs he ran after her on his toes she squeaked as he caught her arm we got to say good-night better than that he grumbled with that damned door Shh! they'd simply murder me if they caught you here do you want to get me fired would you care if it was because of me yes no well but they'd probably fire you from medic school my lad if his caressing hands could feel her shiver with anxiety she peered along the corridor and his quickened imagination created sneaking forms eyes peering from doorways she sighed then resolutely we can't talk here we'll slip up to my room roommates away for the week stand there in the shadow if nobody's in sight upstairs i'll come back he followed her to the floor above to a white door then breathlessly inside as he closed the door he was touched by this cramped refuge with its camp beds and photographs from home and softly wrinkled linen he clasped her but with hand against his chest she forbade him as she mourned you were jealous again how can you distrust me so with that fool women not like him they wouldn't have a chance likes himself too well and then you jealous i wasn't yes i was but i don't dare to have to sit there and grin like a hyena with him between us when i wanted to talk to you to kiss you all right probably i'll always be jealous it's you that have got to trust me i'm not easy-going never will be oh trust me their profound and unresisted kiss was the more blind in memory of that barren hour with angus they forgot that the superintendent of nurses might dreadfully come bursting in they forgot that angus was waiting oh curse angus let him go home was martin's only reflection as his eyes closed and his long loneliness vanished good-night dear love my love for ever he exulted in the ghostliness of the hall he laughed as he thought of how irritably angus must have marched away but from the window he discovered angus huddled on the stone steps asleep as he touched the ground he whistled but stopped short he saw bursting from the shadow a bulky man vaguely in a porter's uniform who was shouting i've caught ya back you come into the hospital and we'll find out what you've been up to they closed martin was wiry but in the watchman's clasp he was smothered there was a reek of dirty overalls of unbathed flesh martin kicked his shins struck at his boulder of red cheek tried to twist his arm he broke loose started to flee and halted the struggle in its contrast to the aching sweetness of leora had infuriated him he faced the watchman raging from the awakened angus suddenly appearing beside him there was a thin sound of disgust oh come on let's get out of this why do you dirty your hands on scum like him the watchman bellowed oh i'm scum am i i'll show you he collared angus and slapped him under the sleepy street lamp martin saw a man go mad it was not the unfeeling angus dur who stared at the watchman 
It was a killer, and his eyes were the terrible eyes of the killer. Speaking to the least experienced, a message of death. He gasped only, He dared to touch me. A penknife was somehow in his hands. He had leaped at the watchman, and he was busily and earnestly endeavouring to cut his throat. As Martin tried to hold them, he heard pounding of a policeman's nightstick on the pavement. Martin was slim, but he had pitched hay and strung telephone wire. He hit the watchman, judiciously, beside the left ear, snatched Angus's wrist, and dragged him away. They ran up an alley, across a courtyard. They came to a thoroughfare as an owl trolley glowed and rattled round the corner. They ran beside it, swung up on the steps, and were safe. Angus stood on the back platform, sobbing. My God, I wished I'd killed him. He laid his filthy hands on me. Martin, hold me here on the car. I thought I'd get over that. Once when I was a kid, I tried to kill a fellow. God, I wish I'd cut that filthy swine's throat. As the trolley came into the centre of the city, Martin coaxed. There's an all-night lunch up Oberlin Avenue where we can get some white mule. Come on, it'll straighten you up. Angus was shaking and stumbling. Angus the punctilious. Martin led him into the lunchroom, where, between catsup bottles, they had raw whiskey in granite-like coffee cups. Angus leaned his head on his arm and sobbed, careless of stairs, until he had drunk himself into obliteration, and Martin steered him home. Then to Martin, in his furnished room with Cliff snoring, the evening became incredible, and nothing more incredible than Angus Dure. Well, he'll be a good friend of mine now, for always. Fine. Next morning, in the hall of the anatomy building, he saw Angus and rushed toward him. Angus snapped. You were frightfully stewed last night, Arrowsmith. If you can't handle your liquor better than that, you'd better cut it out entirely. He walked on, clear-eyed, unruffled. End of chapter 7